We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. The UK spent decades trying to work out how it should think of itself and align itself in the world, a debate that Brexit showed is far from over. Will the United States find it as hard. The debate about American decline rests on a widespread assumption in the country that global supremacy is the US national purpose. How difficult will it be to get beyond that? Well, Professor Jed Esty of the University of Pennsylvania has turned his mind to that. He's written The Future of Decline, Anglo-American Culture at Its Limits, and he joins us now. Welcome. Thank you. And early on in your book, you you know try and work out when the high point was and the moments of confidence in U.S. power being shaken. So, I, I guess this debate's been on since 1945. I think so. I mean, the funny part is the time that most Americans think of as the golden age, which is to say the the early Cold War, the immediate post World War II period when America was really uh, quite dominant um, economically and culturally. You know, the process of relative economic decline already began starting in 1950 when when the U.S. was sort of untenably and impossibly at the top of the global economy because of the, you know, the ravages of World War II. So in a sense, the fall began even at the moment of peak. That's that's just physics almost. But I think it really hastened, gathered momentum and speed and a number of political and cultural consequences starting in the 1970s. And then there was 9-11. And then there was the financial crisis of 2008. These were all important moments. Yeah. And I think one of the things that motivated me to write the book as a member of what you know we call Generation X, young in the 1970s, a young adult in the 1990s, was the sort of whiplash effect of 70s pessimism followed by the kind of artificial, candy-coated Reagan-era optimism of the 1980s, followed by... Um, a more broad-based optimism, almost a sanguine feeling across America in the 1990s that the economy was strong, that the, the great global rival, the Soviet Union, had imploded and collapsed, that big tech was going to save our economy. And that's why 2001 and then the, the, you know, the crash of 2008 hit so hard, because it felt like a return to 1970s-style gloom. And it's been very tight, sharp steep cycles of optimism and pessimism ever since. Now then, in your book, you've, you've come up with 10 theses you know, related to this issue of American decline. And I thought, you know, uh, what we might do is just go through them and sure. get, get, get your take on, on these uh, interesting theses. So the first one, American decline is neither catastrophic nor avoidable. Uh, so just talk us through what you mean by that. I spent, you know, a, a good part of the 18 to 24 months of COVID crisis, reading 50 to 100 books and articles across disciplines and fields about American decline. While not all of these books are themselves internally contradictory, the whole picture, if you synthesize it and you you consider what the educated reading public is hearing from the media and from experts about decline, it's very contradictory. It's basically saying, on the one hand, it makes sense that we're still the number one country and we should live as if we always will be. And then on the other hand, a kind of alarmism and a kind of pessimism, which is that we've lost our perch already, we've lost our status, and the status loss and the material and political consequences of that are are alarming, catastrophic, imminent, and immediate. And of course, those two things can't make sense together. what, What I think is the underlying truth that those two polar schismatic ways of thinking conceal from the American public is we've been in decline for a long time, at least in relative economic terms. And it's a very slow process for both Britain and the United States, you know, and for the Dutch 
economy before them, wealth is very sticky. It, it stays in place for a long time. That's to anticipate another thesis. that we'll I know. I was just going to say, you're getting ahead of yourself there. So let's just, let me just stop you there and just ask, when you say American decline is not avoidable, you're presumably thinking that, you know, China's economic might and military might will soon outpower America's. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the inevitabilities are the long term inevitabilities of globalized capital markets. No one can stay on top forever. The signs are already clear that China in the next decade will have surpassed the US in productive capacity in in trade and investment. It might happen in 2025. It might happen in 2035. By certain measures, it's already happened. So yes, that's one inevitability. You know, if we were to break it into three kind of tracks, economic power, military power, and so-called soft power or cultural power. I think one reason Americans stay optimistic about all this, other than that they are fed misinformation, is that cultural power probably will remain strong for quite a long time. And military power for sure will remain strong. I mean, America is super dominant in military terms even now, despite the anxieties about the Chinese Navy and about the Taiwan Straits. In those two arenas, the U.S. is is likely to stay the most influential and powerful country in the world for several more decades. But the economic base is eroding, and the economic advantage has already slid down quite a bit from all previous historical you know, figures and postures. It was interesting, though. I've, I've, I've lived abroad a fair amount, and I'm very struck that in, in Pakistan, people don't watch American TV anymore. They watch Turkish TV. In the UAE, they watch Korean TV oh. and, and, and stuff now. And, it, you know, the decline of the influence of American TV culture, which was so important, is striking. Absolutely striking. And, you know, it's an important fact, which I touch on in the book, that cultural production, you know, from Nigeria and India, as well as the places you just mentioned, Turkey and Korea, you know, it's robust, it's international, it's globally marketed, it's globally consumed. And the number one show on American streaming TV on Netflix, the biggest streamer, the number one show ever is Squid Game from Korea. Yep. Well, let's deal with the the one you anticipated a bit, which relates particularly to the UK. Once powerful nations retain wealth for a long time, uh, and and it's true, isn't it? I mean, your your, your thesis is is right. This last five years has brought a lot of people up close to the idea that inherited wealth is extremely important. So Thomas Piketty, you know, has had this kind of transatlantic success as, as an economist talking about how much household wealth at the level of families um, stays uh, stuck in its grooves and how little social mobility there really is in France, in Britain, and in America. But then at the macro level, you know, great powers uh, who have amassed great wealth and great hordes of capital and, and productive capacities, you know, all the financial instruments that developed across the 19th and 20th centuries allow capital to stay where it is and preserve wealth. So yeah, I think it's there are a number of really detailed studies by economic historians that that back this up. But I think a wider public is becoming conscious of it now. It's been known by specialists for a long time, but it's it's sort of becoming a wider concept that and that in the US that uh, land grab and the institutions of slavery and racial capitalism produced a great deal of the wealth that used to be attributed to, you know, Yankee dynamism. The fate of American capitalism is not the fate of global capitalism. So what this is a concern that if America goes down, uh, it's, all its values go down. That's right. And I mean, I think a lot of people that I would say I'm trying to be in, in dialogue with in this book, people who think about long-term uh, economic trajectories, a lot of people on the left of that conversation really feel that capitalism itself is about to go under in some potentially transformative way, um, probably disastrous, uh, but also ultimately transformative. I don't think that's right. Um, I I actually am quite agnostic. Uh, I mean, I'm no expert in the field of long-term economics. I'm really coming at this from the cultural history angle, but I'm pretty agnostic about whether China is going to be a solo economic hegemon in the 21st century. I think the Asian economies taken in the aggregate, including the parts of the world that that you know best um, in South Asia, 
you know, there's so much demographic latent power there and so much lies ahead in terms of the industrialization and modernization of, of the Asian economies and then ultimately the Afri economies, African economies. So I think capitalism rolls on with the U.S. as a number two and ultimately a number three economy after China and India, you know, in another 30 or 40 years. I think that's what it will look like. Global success leads to cultural stagnation. That's, that's a bold claim. Why, why, why do you think that's true? Well, that's a sort of intuitive point, which I think a number of people, whatever their political orientation, understand about the experience of modernization in the United Kingdom and in Britain, as well as the United States, which is once you have successful institutions and successful business practices and a class that is affluent built on those successes, it becomes very difficult to continue to innovate, to shift to new lines of production, to rethink core ways of life and core institutional practices. They settle into habit. They become sclerotic. They become stagnant. They become, you know, complacent and comfortable. And I think that's, I I call that intuitive because again, that tends to resonate for people in terms of the psychology of personal success. And it also kind of tracks to history when it comes to highly successful nations and their elites settling into patterns that then don't get innovated upon. Well, that's interesting. So, because I mean, you know, having not studied this like you, it would have occurred to me that one reason for decline of a great power would be not so much complacency, or that maybe that's, uh, you know, very well identified by you, but the, the big thing would be the loss of cheap labor and and people's unwillingness to to work in the same way that people let's say in the UK would have been 100 years ago yeah for sure and that everyone's talking about that in the US the covid economy has put a fine and sharp point on the general shift in the labor market which has been going on for 30 or 40 years and again i think that's an inevitability of how capitalism works just as you're saying it's not about a failed attitude or a complacent attitude it's not a psychological or ethical question in that sense. It's simply a matter of purest rules of economics, of labor, and the cost of labor. But you know, the U.S. is differently situated than the U.K. in terms of its scale of economy and its capacity to absorb cheaper labor from immigrant populations. And that has been the predicate for U.S. prosperity and dynamism forever, which is why the Trump moment caught so many people short, because the cultural tolerance for a high immigration, cheap labor economy has been cut off at a moment when the economic need for that cheap labor certainly has not been cut off. Your next thesis, um, I can't quite understand its significance, really. Hegemony describes an international set of relations. Well, as well as a set of internal relations. Uh, The thesis is really trying to get at the point that most talk about decline stems from elites anxiety. In other words, the the whole body of thoughts and concerns and studies of decline in the UK and in the US tends to be driven by a covert or disguised panic on the part of the most well-situated people in those societies. Meaning that the anxiety about a class losing its status gets transformed and disguised into the anxiety about a nation losing its status. So I guess the point about defining hegemony in that way, and I'm drawing it directly from the historian Perry Anderson from the old British New Left, is that hegemony can't just be viewed as a contest among nations and national powers, but has to be viewed as a contest among different national elites who are competing against each other and also against other classes and sectors of their own societies for resources. Belief in national supremacy is tied up with white supremacy. And perhaps we could take that in with another point you're making. Rise and fall rhetoric is tied up with masculinity. Now, these are two things that wouldn't, just on the face of it at first glance, be associated with decline. Why have you brought in white supremacy and masculinity? Here again, I draw on the resources of British historians and cultural commentators from the 1960s and 70s who were, as I described them in the book, first responders to the post-war crisis of British society that ultimately led to to the Thatcher moment um, in the late 70s and into the 1980s. 
And one of those figures who's very influential in the book is Stuart Hall. And I, I'm kind of asking the question in the book, did the, did the crises that Hall uh, analyzed and identified in the 1970s in Britain, do they now resonate in a particular way with the U.S.? And one of the things that Hall observed about British society as an outsider, as a Jamaican uh, student and then academic historian himself, was that Britain's capacity to go on believing in its superiority to other nations was built up over generations, and that that belief in superiority, superior enterprise, superior energy, superior capacity to govern, had an underlying racial tinge to it. It it was actually a belief in the superiority of white Britons. I do believe that the same holds true in America, that the language of supremacy, of national supremacy, is something that most Americans of color, Black Americans, Asian American, Latinx, Indigenous Americans do not subscribe to. It's a, it's a fantasy that has, practically speaking, a racially inflected or racially organized basis to it. And so <laughs> when, when America starts confronting its own decline, racial crisis erupts. And that's exactly where we have been in the last five years in the U.S. Because when you, when you said that... Um... You know, there's an elite panic, uh, and it, it, and part of the competition is between panicking elites, uh, and that that's where the crisis of confidence is. I was thinking, well, actually, isn't it the case that that sense of superiority is not just an elite belief? I mean, I think in the UK, the, the famous thuggish uh, football supporters who go around the world and display their national arrogance would have that same sense of uh, superiority despite Britain's, you know, long uh, drawn out decline. Yeah, that's right. Well, I think that's that's the, where things get very interesting and complex. And I think partly there's a transmission through one class's moral panic to the, to the wider, broader basis for the moral crisis. And in the US, I think it very much is true that, let's say, people who subscribe to the MAGA politics make America great again, and who found Trump to be a figure almost like a kind of savior, despite all his manifest weaknesses and self-contradictions, that phenomenon, the MAGA voter and the Trump victory in 2016, does map on, I think, to what you're talking about. But what is interesting and perhaps distinctive about, about this recent history we're living through is that a lot of commentators see the Trump voter, the prototypical Trump voter, as a economically disenfranchised white male from the countryside, from rural America, and a working class or lower middle class figure. But in fact, Trump's voters are very propertied white males. Their class affiliations, because of their education level, may tend toward the populist and toward the lower middle. But their property status tends toward quite affluence. You know, in this recent election in the U.S., in 2020, people with incomes over 100,000 uh, supported Trump and people with incomes under 100,000 US dollars supported Biden. So, hmm. um, yeah, yeah, but I've a, got, I'm wondering though, because when you look at the Brexit vote here, which would be the MAGA vote to, mm-hmm. to, to some degree, yes. uh, it was very striking that amongst the Brexiteers were many immigrant communities, you know, and, and, and it confused a lot of people on the left in Britain who couldn't mm-hmm. quite understand what was going on. But it, I mean, that was a feature of the, of the vote. And what, what is the logic that you ascribe or you've heard people ascribe to, the, to those voters who are from immigrant communities but are pro-Brexit? Well, I mean, I, th- I think everyone's confused, actually. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think, maybe you know, there is no good explanation. Yeah, I mean, there, there was some talk of shutting the door behind and this sort of thing and, and mm-hmm. um, trying to you know, because the, the immigration issue was so key to the Brexit vote. So there was a sense that, uh, you know, recent immigrants are more hostile to immigration than than others. But that's about the best I heard. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some real razzle-dazzle or ideological magic associated, I think, in both of our countries with voters' belief that a certain kind of adherence to MAGA-Brexit logic and to MAGA-Brexit nostalgia and to pure, the purest form of fantasy about free markets as unleashing capital, solving you know, the, the pinch and the crisis of income and wealth and middle-class lifestyle. The razzle-dazzle in, in the U.S. is, and it, it maps on to, say, Latino, Latino voters in the state of Texas who shifted towards Trump 
despite his manifest hostility um, to Mexican immigration, for example, they still voted for Trump. I think there's a fundamental belief in core traditional values on matters like uh, sex and abortion, and that's attached to the to the Trump MAGA vote, but also core pocketbook issues or economic issues where, um, and this goes right to the heart. It's not a question you've asked, but I'll, I'll, I'll answer it for myself anyway. To me, it goes right to the heart of why this contradiction about declinism is so politically and culturally vital now. And that is the right wing, I think in both our countries, definitely in mine, has convinced voters who are economically vulnerable both that the economy is very fragile with Chinese competition and therefore requires sacrifice and a certain kind of economic patriotism, a willingness to accept austerity and the massive withdrawal of public goods and services. So to accept all that, voters have to believe in the fragility of America. And yet at the same time, voters are asked to continually reinvest, literally with their retirement dollars, their own money, hard-earned, to reinvest in the idea that America's future greatness and the future robust economy will reward them with you know, long-term wealth. So that contradiction is exactly the contradiction in economic terms that declinism subsists on or rests upon in cultural terms, which is we were great once and we will be again. And, and what about the masculinity point you're making? Oh, yes. The second part of your question. Well, that is, a, is a, to some degree, an abstruse point about um, how historians talk about empires, greatness, world power, and its loss. And that is to say that I detected in my survey of the literature of decline across these fields, politics, economics, history, journalism, and cultural history, my, my own field, I detected a kind of pattern where many of the most skeptical people about the grandiose narrative of we were once a great power, now we're a declining nation. Many of the most skeptical people about that were women historians and many of the most um, captivated uh, writers who were swept away by the rhetorical power and the rhetorical sweep of Britain is the new Rome, America is the new Britain, this kind of grand epic story that empires rise and fall and it's the spectacle of history that there's a kind of hubris on the way up and a kind of tragic dignity and grandeur to the loss on the way down. That has a very masculine tinge to it. It's, it, it's a kind of heroic way of conceiving of a story that's actually somewhat less heroic, both on the way up and on the way down. It's not so tragic to be the second, or in the case of Britain, seventh largest economy in the world. And it wasn't so purely heroic to have amassed all that capital in the first place. So uh, I'm kind of using the word masculine and the word heroic as synonyms there. Of course, they aren't synonyms. But but nonetheless, I think what a cultural and literary critic like, like me can do entering in a debate that's dominated by economists and political scientists is at least try to focus some attention to the question of gender, which I think does to some degree affect how people view these big meta or mega narratives of history. Right. But you're talking about the, the US and the UK in that regard, but it, it would be equally true of China, wouldn't it? Well, that is a great question. And I have not explored that very much. And, and I do think, you know, there's, there's a great book about global nostalgia for empires by Campanella and Dassu, which, which is an important source, source for me. And they talk a lot about British nostalgia for empire, but they also talk about Turkish nostalgia as nostalgia for the Mughal Empire in South Asia and Chinese nostalgia for earlier dynastic power. And yes, I think in all those cases, there is an underlying stitch or inflection point in which the gender of those forms of nostalgia becomes evident. There, there is a kind of imperial rise and fall narrative that's associated with power, authority, a certain kind of masculine values of, uh, or masculinist you know, values of pure exertion of will and power on the global destiny of a people. And, you know, it's a subtle point. I'm, I'm trying to kind of read through the overt meanings of a lot of the books about British and American decline, and for that matter, Chinese or Turkish decline, through the rhetoric of nostalgia to arrive at something like the appeal of that story to male readers 
When when we just on China, one one sort of related thought. When when you look ahead to Chinese economic power, you know I've heard the argument put forward by was a, a, I remember doing an interview years ago, with leftist journalist who said that China would not copy Britain and America in terms of its uh, overseas military bases and you know international ambitions. Have, have you given any thought to that? Because I mean that would obviously affect the way the U.S. perceives its own decline. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that's maybe the most important question at the level of strategy and kind of geopolitics um, that you're asking right now about the next 10 years, because this summer's kerfuffle over Taiwan and Nancy Pelosi traveling to Taiwan and the Taiwan Straits is one hot spot, but there, there's a global struggle going on and, and everyone is watching the Chinese military very closely. The, the buildup of, of the Chinese Navy is a real factual thing. But on the other hand, I mean, two, two really important things, I think, do distinguish the pattern of Chinese power from the pattern of British and American power. And one is ideology. You know, a lot of, a lot of declinologists who, I, who I've read, who I've been tracking the last few years, um, are surprised to see that China has a a distinctive pattern of wielding economic power that doesn't lead automatically into liberal democratic values. And so, you know, we're back to a kind of second Cold War in a sense where I think a lot of smug Americans believe that as China modernized and became a great power, it would liberalize in the way that Britain and America did. And it isn't. And yet many elites in Africa and in the rest of Asia, I think, uh, are not averse to Chinese-style capitalism when it arrives. And that's the second thing that distinguishes it, which is just as America could gain power over the rest of the world without being quite so imperially committed as Britain was in the 19th century, so too China can even more flex its muscles through capital markets and through large projects and infrastructural control in places like Africa without being a militarily present occupying or dominant power. So, I mean, the real action is in all this incredible buildup of Chinese infrastructure, you know, uh, railway projects in Central and Southern Africa and clean energy projects across Southeast Asia and, you know, and, and of course, technological control of what you would call the physical basis of the internet, right? Undersea cables and satellites, the things that convey all the information that run the world now. Yeah, but I mean, surely that, that, that I mean, not, not the technology, obviously, but much of that is, is the East India Company all over again, isn't it? And, and the East India Company wasn't bothered about politics at first at all. It was just, it was just making sure. money. Sure, of course. But in the cycle of things, it became more and more clear that there had to be a, a kind of joint project between the British Army and the British government and the East India Company over time, not in the first 150 years. But, but it does seem like America was able to, I mean, America had a very obviously global military strategic presence with all those bases. But it still marked a shift, I think, in terms of the practice of empire or the practice of superpower hegemony. And I think the shift continues with China. So yes, it's not an absolute difference of kind, but I think it is a difference of degree. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Because I was assuming that China will follow the British pattern and and that, um, you know, it's it's buying off the elites in Africa and elsewhere, just as the British brought off the elites in in India. Well, yes. No, I think think you're right about that. That pattern is true. But, but, you know, it's also true that what we've been talking about, about how much wealth was amassed over the course of, of the imperial phase of British power and the American superpower phase, you know, it's still true that China is way behind the West uh, Britain included, of course, in terms of GDP per capita. And when you, there's a little chart I have in the book that maybe you you saw as you as you worked your way through, uh, in which what what is distinct about our moment in history is that during the peak of British power and the peak of American power, Britain and America respectively controlled 
way more of the world's wealth and trade proportional to their population than anyone else did. Now, even as China becomes the number one economy in the world, their control of world wealth, which is to say about 20% of global gross global product, is going to map on almost perfectly to their 20% of the world's population, meaning that it's proportional. The wealth is proportional to the population, whereas for Britain, the wealth was extremely disproportionate to the population. Right. But I mean, just as you know, I feel like slightly I'm going on about this, but I, I just want to just pin down what you think about it. So it, 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 maybe maybe that statistic you've just given affects what I'm asking. But it, it, once China has gone through, you know, that first phase of commercial activity, shouldn't we expect that it will do what Britain and America did, which is to deploy huge numbers of troops abroad, yeah, or, or recruit local troops and pay them, uh, you know, that it will become a military operation as well as an economic economic one? That is a good question. I don't know about that expectation. I think there are reasons to assume it. There are good historical um, and logical reasons that you are, I don't think you're persisting in the question. I think it's a great question, a really important one. But I also think there are counter arguments or counter possibilities in the logic. And, you know, one is that the, the cycle of peak power keeps accelerating. So Britain was able to hold on to it longer than America has been. I think China will be able to hold on it longer to, to it e- even less long. It, their cycle at the top will be even shorter because the kinds of factors that you pointed to, such as when you industrialize rapidly, the cost of labor goes up quickly capital will move elsewhere. In other words, I think India will start challenging China, um, you know, in the middle of this century, much more quickly than China started challenging America, the hundred year reign. So I think it's possible that Chinese hegemony could be overstated, including the specific question you're asking, which is the military sequel to an economic and infrastructural takeover. Not sure it will happen in, in exactly that way. And we also have to contend with the different factor that Britain and America didn't have to contend with, and that is climate change. I think the havoc that climate change could wreak upon Chinese global pretensions and global projects could be a considerable factor by 2050 or 2070. It's 2179. And just one other thought on this, on this, on these military issues. I mean, I don't know whether this is just a very sort of biased British view, but I, I, you know, looking at it without having studied it like you have, it would seem that the dismantling of the British Empire was more peaceful, and I'm not for a moment saying it was peaceful, uh, but more peaceful than the American decline. The British decline was more peaceful than the American decline. I don't know. I don't know if I, right. if I see it that way. I, I think there was a lot of skirmishing and hot and violent conflict and war, even in the so-called Pax Britannica, Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of struggle had to be fought, you know, physically and directly. No Iraq, huh? Well, no, but and the American wars, um, I, I think m- maybe one, one way to put this is that the militarized and financialized economies of a late and dwindling or tottering empire, so that's Britain in 1900 and America in 1980 and 90, do tend to produce an accelerating pattern of violent expropriation of resources through the financial economy and violent conflict with the economic satellites and the economic subalterns of the world. So yes, and maybe it is true that the cycle hastens itself. Um, but I'm not sure we wouldn't be um, doing too much big history pattern thinking. And uh, it's obviously the kind of thinking I like to do and do do in this book. And so I appreciate that you're, you're doing it too and with me, but I'm not sure that the pattern is so consistent, even if we just restrict the comparison of British decommissioning of power to American decommissioning of power. And, and I do think, I guess, I guess what I think that goes to the heart of the whole conversation we're having is I have more optimism about, about America than I do about Britain right now, because I think America still has a the chance to learn from the British example, to take the British, to heed the British example of superpower nostalgia as a kind of crippling political legacy. And 
you know, there's a real fight on for the soul of America and for political control of America between two sharply different visions of America. But I think there's a generational generational change afoot. And I think many Americans under 50 would be very happy uh, if their economic lives and the social life of the country could be restored to some kind of future-oriented dynamism without global supremacy, as long as that dynamism is present and they believe they have a future, I don't think they care as much about the patriotic project of American power or about projecting American power. And therefore, I think appetite for violent um, clinging to power in the Middle East and all over the world, I think, is low in America. Yes, well, it, it, it's another real thesis, and I've, I've, I've been sort of not getting onto it for ages, which, which is that U.S. decline will be different to U.K. decline. Mm-hmm. And uh, one way of looking at it is that is, is, you know, it's different for different parts of America, isn't it, for the, for the elites, maybe, for the working classes. So beyond that idea you've just given of the U.S. learning from the U.K.'s experience, what, what other factors are involved in you thinking the decline will be different? Well, I mean, the most basic economic fact is that the U.S. still has a wealth-generating capacity and a, and a demographic base that makes it, and a territorial base that makes America, America's wealth is not so disproportionate to its population or its landmass than British wealth was. Um, you know, Britain is still a six, seven, or eight size economy in the world, 22nd rank in population and something like 80th rank in territory. It makes a certain kind of vulgar, basic sense that the U.S. remain a top two or three economy in the world for the next 50 to 100 years. So I think that won't be such a violent um, or a a sudden drain on U.S. resources. I also think there was an immigrant history to the United States that predated, a a big immigrant history that predated its superpowerdom. So the U.S. was such a major immigrant country in 1900 and 1925 um, and all the way through, whereas in Britain, a lot of the immigration debates and the multiracial democracy struggles came in tandem with the shrinking of the, of the empire. And so I think in the U.S., those things are, more, are, are possible to peel apart more easily. And the, the possible, possibility of a, of a truly multiracial and multicultural democracy in America is therefore baked into the whole notion of what America is. Uh, it's, it's sort of a more settled question, even though there's a white revanche right now or a white moral panic among, say, 25% of the electorate, a lot of those people are going to be dead in 20 years. They're old. Does it make a difference that the Brits look back to Downton Abbey and, and the Americans will look back to Mad Men? Does that make any difference? Oh, yes. I think that makes a lot of difference. I mean, uh, it's a very interesting pattern. And I use those two television programs of the, uh, of the period about 10 years ago in history, um, uh, which, which were big at the same moment in the U.S. To, to reflect two different, yeah, as you're saying, styles of nostalgia or reference points for nostalgia. And I think, you know, not to get too into the nitty gritty of class analysis here, but I do think one way to understand the prevailing values that feed the language of decline in our two countries is that in Britain, you had a kind of gentrified middle-class concept of what Britain was and what the empire meant, a kind of Edwardian Downton Abbey era version of that. Whereas in America, I think there's a more bourgeoisified working class, which is to say the, the values of technical mastery and market orientation uh, that prevailed in the Cold War in the mid 20th century of the US combined with the rising wage base for working and middle-class families, particularly in the industrial U.S., created a, kind of, created a kind of popular base for the idea of American greatness. It, everyone believed in it, right? It wasn't an elite project. It was a project into which the middle classes were recruited in the 1940s and 50s and 60s. And I think the success of that recruitment is sort of organized around madman style values to get at your question. It's, it's organized around a can-do, Yankee engineering, uh, consumer society version of what America is. And I think it doesn't require the same kind of signifiers, crown, empire, uh, elite hierarchy as, as the British version of um, 
of great power or of British greatness did. So I, I do think that the the menu of, of cultural symbols and signifiers in the U.S. allows for a better peeling apart from global supremacy. America can stand for, America already stood for a kind of democratizing version of greatness before 1950, and it can stand for that again if it can confront the legacies of Black and Indigenous history in the U.S. Right, that's, that's, yes, exactly. So, so you're saying that both the, work, the working class in both the United States and the U.K., bought into this idea of national superiority, but the American version of it being more based on technological advancement and sort of economic competence was, was is almost sort of healthier, if you like, or, or yeah. easier, better for the future than the British one, which is basically where better than everyone else. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and more modern, um, more, more modern and more democratized. I mean, that, that's kind of like a different way of reframing the same essential thesis that if you peak early, you accrue disadvantages over the long run. And, but, but, you know, there's many other factors than just that simple and crude maxim. There, there's so much else that differentiates our histories. And America has many, many, many problems, you know, to solve. Our politics are about as chaotic now as yours are. When we're talking about the different nature of British and American decline, how important is it that the British handed over the baton, as it were, to close allies, very culturally similar, a power with which Britain felt entirely comfortable and admired, whereas the Americans will be giving way to a power with huge cultural difference and who they don't admire, really. Hugely important. And I think... I think that's in a funny way that allowed for a softer landing for Britain to believe that they were in partnership with the U.S. at Bretton Woods and in the in the immediate aftermath of World War II and even World War One for that matter, actually, which is when the baton really began to pass. And that has extended and protracted the life cycle of Britain's understanding of itself as playing great power politics in the world with America. And that's not just a fantasy or a myth. That's actually true. I mean, that that is how it has happened. And I do think that the values clash and the underlying racial phobia that Americans have about China and Chinese ideology and, you know, lingering aspects of a command economy and of, of a Confucian value set do, do spell an entirely different kind of future for American decline. And that's, that's a super important factor in in our conversation about how these two historical pathways might differ and might diverge. Yeah, because I think Americans, it, it cuts in two ways. Americans of one kind will cling to the myth of American power longer because there's no soft ramp or soft path downward because uh, they will be phobic about Chinese takeover. But Americans of another kind, I think, will be freed from the burden of thinking about our global supremacy for another 20 or 40 or 60 years, because they won't think, oh, China and we now rule the world together. They'll think Asian economic dynamism is a fact of life now. And after that will come the phase of history when, when Africa is probably industrialized, if, you know, if we get there without climate collapse. And, and that's going to, in a curious way, and this is, the, this is the curious, optimistic undertow of the book you and I are discussing, my book, um, which is that, in a strange way, America has a possibility to have a political transformation towards a future orientation without supremacy, precisely because it won't be in that kind of partnership with China. There certainly will be rivalry, but there won't be that kind of partnership. Some of the reasons for that are unsavory um, and include racism and phobia. But some of the consequences of that could be, and that, that's the co- sort of wager or gamble of, the, of this book, could be that America sees its phase of history as a second power, still a great power, but a number two power, as a chance to kind of rewire the, the basic belief system of of the national mission and the national sense of purpose, you know, to echo back to your opening remarks, your introductory statement. Yeah, because I mean, it's long been my feeling that 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 Britain has suffered for for this, you know, that, that it's never faced up to its place in the world, and and has mm-hmm. these delusions because of American power, really. Mm-hmm. And America could avoid that. 
Yeah, absolutely. China is not our creation in any sense. And I think there's, there is an undertow of British culture that sees America not just as a partner, but as an offshoot of the British project uh, of world making. And, you know, and there's a lot of truth to that. The other side of that is that it's, it's, it'll be a more frightening world for the Americans. I mean, for the Brits, it was really, you know, there was nothing scary about uh, losing power to the United States. But uh, I don't think many Americans will feel very relaxed about losing power to China in some respects. Yeah, that's right. I mean, so much depends now on the inner health of the Chinese economy over the next 20 years. I mean, there, there are signs, some economists point to a lot of signs about labor shortages and labor problems and, uh, you know, breakdowns over COVID regulation and uh, other kinds of hard uh, ecological limits that might affect what we're talking about here in 2022. It might make it possible to see China less as the specter and as the sovereign national container of capitalist growth and dynamism. Um, it, it might be, and that's why I talk about Asian economies. I mean, Vietnam's a really important economy. As you know, India and Pakistan are huge countries with huge military presence. And, uh, and beyond that, as we move our way westward, you know, we have Iran and we have Saudi Arabia and we have the whole Middle Eastern world. There's a lot, it, it, I think a multipolar world rather than a Chinese world is what we're looking at in the next hundred years. Right, which would make a difference, obviously, to American uh, perceptions. Now then, there is just one other aspect of this. If America's decline, preceded by British decline, is Western decline. Mm. And yeah, that affects Europe, yeah, and it affects all those who are hostile to the West all over the world. Mm-hmm. So what, what is the implication of that? Because that, that's new and different. Uh, that's a great question, too. And I mean, I think one, one quick answer is that if America really is a declining superpower, some of the reasons for the hostility to the West in general, Europe included, will be blunted and muted over the next generation or two. On the other hand, it is true that America was doing all this unbelievable capillary network distributed diplomacy and public relations for itself through Hollywood and through Walt Disney and through Blue Jeans and Coca-Cola and and the whole kind of making of world consumer society in the mirror image of American consumer society was, it was cultural imperialism at one level, but was also creating affiliation and affection and a kind of pro-Western rather than anti-Western set of habits and sentiments. Now that we have what you described with people watching Turkish and Korean TV rather than American films and movies and cartoons and sports, you know, we have a more truly global culture rather than a global culture that has an American dominant flavor to it. And that's a, that is going to be uh, a, a major shift. It already is, has happened and it's going to cut in two directions. There's less America to hate, but there's also less America to love. So what will the balance sheet on that be? I don't know. I think this may be one of your theses. My notes are slightly sort of confused on this on that point. But uh, you, I got a line here saying narratives of decline matter more than metrics. What do you mean by that? Well, here again, we come to the fact that what my project really is, what what the voice I'm trying to insert into the public discourse about decline in your country and mine is that the economists and the statisticians. And the policy analysts have too much influence in the way we talk about this conversation, despite the fact that we've all learned in the last 25 years that what people believe is so much more important than what they think. The shaping cultural narratives that inform what they believe are so difficult to change and to move using simply metrics and facts and statistics. You can tell people what the real state of the world is or what the real state of the UK economy is, and they won't believe it their ideological and cultural affiliations will shape their actions and their votes much more than any facts will. So I guess in in the simplest sense, that's what I mean, which is that the mythology that declinists try to offer to the public and try to retail and sell to the public, which is, especially in your country, you know, the kind of make make Britain great again, Thatcherite ideology. And in my country, this still very Reagan-esque make America great again story, those stories are way more powerful than the facts that I can recite to people about how America wasn't great even in the 1980s. And so there has to be a counter narrative. It can't be 
liberal and left people offering facts against a right-wing narrative about British identity or American identity, because that right-wing narrative will always win. There has to be a more powerful, even to some degree mythological, way to describe what Britain's identity is and what Britain's purpose or mission in the world is, and likewise for America, if the vote is ever going to tilt back, you know, if, if the 60% of people who think that trust in Britain or Trump in America represent a bad narrative, that if we're, if we're ever going to pull the electorate a little bit away from this long conservative victory since Reagan and Thatcher, it's going to require that. Well, if you want a depressing thought about the power of right-wing narratives, uh, I remember going to a, a restaurant in Rome and asked if they could split the bill. We all had credit cards, and you know, you could sort of mm-hmm. split the bill. Mm-hmm. And uh, the response of the waitress was, you think we are... Pe- I mean, no, first of all. <laughs> she couldn't. <laughs> right. and, and when we looked slightly upset, she was like, you think we are peasants... But may I remind you, we had a great empire. <laughs> oh, my God, I know. I know. You know what's incredible to me, and I'm going to write about this soon, um, is we haven't even talked about something very interesting that connects to all of our conversation, which is the change in the abortion laws in the U.S. just this summer. But the, the person most responsible for that, who's the Supreme Court Justice in the U.S., Samuel Alito, gave a big presentation in Rome this summer at, where he invoked imperial Rome in much the same way and, you know, mounted and marshaled this rhetoric about how great civilizations need to have a kind of, uh, let's call it a demographic base. In other words, the fantasy of great power that lingers in Rome, in Britain, in Turkey, in Russia, in China, and in America is always about recreating a sense of dominance and supremacy through having the most people and the most weapons and the most wealth. And we can't all have that fantasy if there's going to be peace and prosperity in the 21st century. It's just, it's a relic of history. Well, Professor SD, thank you very much for, you know, a very interesting tour of these very big themes. Everyone says that uh, academics study narrower and narrower things, but you're, you're, you, you, prove it's, you prove it's not true. Ah, thank you. Well, it was a, it was a great pleasure. Thank you for all your, your questions and, and new leads for me to think about. <laughs>